Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. I am Peter Englert. I'm a co-host of this show. I am with Ramon Quintero, another Hello. co-host. How you doing? Hello. Good, good. I'm good, ready. Good. Oh, man. We... I don't think people know this, but we like stack episodes, so this is like the second of our day. So like we're we're in the zone. Yes, we're ready. We're here uh, with our producer Dave, and then we're also here with our guest uh, Brigham Lee. We're uh, Brigham is going to share a little bit more about himself. How did I meet him? I was a pipsqueak freshman at Valley Forge Christian College, and he was a senior. Um, the first time I met him, he was the chapel usher, the head chapel usher, and uh, he had a great tie on. I remember that. I think it was a blue. But anyways, I just remember him. He was awesome in college. We got to spend a little bit more time, and we reconnected. Um, we're starting a brand new series today. It's on reconciliation, and the reason we're doing this series is we talk about reconciliation mainly towards racial reconciliation that's kind of been the hot topic but christians have a unique perspective to reconciliation and this is the first of this series of episodes we're going to be looking at why does reconciliation matter to mental health why does it matter to sports we wanted to kind of reframe the discussion to help us think it more holistically so today brigham just has the easy question why does reconciliation matter to christianity no big deal so he, he's got a Gordon Conwell education. I'll share more about that. He's all set to go. What do you think about this question? Well, I personally love it. I mean, it's it's so much goes into this one word. Um, and it, it can cover a multitude of uh, different topics. So I, I'm interested to just hear, like you mentioned, the perspective from Christianity and also get to share from the perspective of a personal uh, first thing that comes to mind for me in my relationship as a, as a Christian would be how I've been reconciled with, with God mm. and, and, and who I am because of that reconciliation. So that's like the very first thing that come to mind in terms of, all right, I'm thankful that I can be reconciled and that I, I, I'm, I'm called this, his son. I'm, I'm part of the, the family due to what he's done it, um, through, through the cross. So, yeah. Man, that's a great way to start our episode, Ramon. So, uh, bring him before we get really, really deep. Um, let's get to know you. Um, 49ers, Boston Celtics, you know, we'll, we'll go there, but tell us where you grew up and, uh, how you ended up in Boston. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much, Pete and Ramon for having me today. It's just, uh, it's really exciting to get to be here to talk about all this stuff. I mean, my background is pretty simple. I, I grew up in the great state of Maryland. So I grew up in Southern Maryland, uh, just south of DC on the Maryland side by about 30 minutes, a little town called Waldorf. And, uh, you know, grew up in that context, grew up in that space, uh, was raised by a single mom who was raising two boys, 10 months apart. So we were, whew, it was a little crazy, but I ended up I keep moving further and further north. I went to uh, the University of Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, and then uh, God called me to Gordon-Conwell. I think you mentioned that uh, as well. But the reason I stayed in New England, I'm here in Boston, just north on the North Shore, uh, is I, I met my wife. So I met my wife. She's from here. And so I'm stuck. That That's pretty much it, man. Uh, she she locked it down. And uh, no, but I love, love living in New England, love living just north of the city here. Uh, and being here on the North Shore, so yeah. R- Ramon and I are both in Rochester because of our wives. Let's just be honest. So there we, you go. There uh, you go. You know, before we get started, this year has been a very difficult year. Um, we've had a lot of questions, and I guess from your perspective, what are some misconceptions that you notice about reconciliation that just come to the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, when you think about the word reconciliation, big R. Uh, as you like to say, Peter, like uh, overarching, whether it's uh, financial reconciliation, relational reconciliation, racial reconciliation, any any form of something that was torn apart being brought back together, something that is supposed to be one thing, but it's not being brought into alignment. Um, when you think about anything around that word, I think misconceptions come up about processes, about how to get from A to B. I think misconceptions come up when you think about um, what it actually takes to get there or what's required 
when it comes to relationships, what's required of each individual person? When it, when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, racial reconciliation, what's required of different groups and what makes them different and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different misconceptions around the term, around the thought, around the idea of reconciliation. And I think in order to get clarity, you've got to go to the gospel. I think that that's paramount, foundational. Uh, I mean, it, it makes all the difference when it comes to clearly communicating about reconciliation. And you definitely uh, alluded to this to this um, answer to this question, and I want to see if you could expand on that. Um, would you say the gospel is the, the unique part of reconciliation when it comes to Christianity? Um, and if not, what would... What 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 else would it be? Right. Well, I, I think when it comes to Christianity, reconciliation is huge. But we have to remember that uh, it's not it, it's a part of the bigger narrative and the bigger story of what God is doing. So it's it's crucial, mm. especially when you think about what God did for us. So we think about uh, reconciliation from the standpoint that in the person of Jesus Christ. God reconciled us to himself. We were sinful. We were broken. We're falling away. All of us, anybody listening today has hurts, habits, and hangups. It doesn't matter who you are. We've Mm -hmm. all got them. Mm -hmm. And so that's in our nature. But God is holy and God is perfect and God is just. And so directly and tangibly connected to the nature of God is this powerful work he did in the gospel. And in the gospel, we see, if I can oversimplify, the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that his perfect life uh, could could serve as our perfect sacrificial lamb on our behalf, and so that he paid the penalty for the sin that we owed. And then his resurrection shows him taking that victory and actually applying it to any and all who believe. And so, therefore, the Bible tells us that we're reconciled to God. We have Mm. peace. We have uh, a communion with God. And so that's that's a big, big thing. And so it's crucial to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be somebody who's put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, for that tangible, uh, direct connection to God and being reconciled to him. When we were lost, when we were alone, when we were dead in our sins, God reconciled us back to life, back to relationship, right relationship with him. You know- I want to kind of back up because I I think Christianity brings a ton of uniqueness to reconciliation. That's why we're doing this podcast. But I want to hear your opinion. So let's take Jesus and Christianity out of the equation for reconciliation. So does that mean, like, would you say that reconciliation to people means everybody agrees to what's right? Does reconciliation mean we agree to who's in power? Does reconciliation just mean the absence of of conflict? I guess what what I'm trying to kind of process with our listeners is what's the missing sauce to reconciliation if Jesus isn't part of the equation? That's a really hard question, Peter, because you know I'm a preacher, and therefore <laughs> uh, I think that the missing sauce is Jesus. But uh, when you think about the idea of what reconciliation is, and I think this is kind of what you're getting at, that does reconciliation mean everybody agrees? Does reconciliation mean that there is no conflict? Absolutely not. Um, you know, in families and in the family of God, we have this tension. We have differences of opinion, differences of thought, differences of directions that we want to go. And uh, how do we experience unity? How do we experience oneness while still recognizing that there are differences between us? And, you know, a perfect example of that, even if we take Christ out of it, comes comes in terms of, of even race. I mean, that's something that's been on the forefront of our thoughts over the course of the last year. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot going on. Uh, there's COVID, there's uh, economic strife, there's political tension, there's racial tension going on. And we want to see reconciliation. Well, what is what does it look like? for us to be reconciled. Mm. And one of the elements of that is thinking about what are our differences? Does that mean we have to ignore differences or, or wash them away and, and go for this idea of sameness? But I don't think that that's the goal. You know, Dr. Tony Evans 
talks a lot about this idea of oneness and embracing it, but there is a difference between oneness and sameness. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. There's a difference, uh, as they say in Star Trek, between you know the Federation and the Borg. Uh, and I'm just outed myself as a nerd there. But you know the the Borg say you know assimilate, right? They say resistance is futile. Just just put your unique personality into the collective and let it be washed away. But there is a way to get to a space where we are united and one even in light of our differences. And I have to add it back in, but ultimately God made us unique. He made us with our differences, not because uh, that's that's just something that's supposed to tear us apart, but rather because he wants to unite us even in those things. So I do think that there can be differences of opinion. There can be differences of thought. Uh, there are different perspectives. There can be disagreement even while still having right relationship. And when you really get down to it, that's what it means to be reconciled, having a right relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you might even agree to disagree, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and you're going to find that in in any organization and especially within the church. So seeing it played out in the church, how has this been, um, in your personal experience, how has this been um, played out? Meaning, have you seen some good examples of reconciliation happening within the church body? And then ha- what would be some examples of maybe not playing um, play out well in terms of bad examples within the organization? Yeah, I mean, the church, big C, overall, Christianity uh, around the world, mm-hmm. uh, has a history of trouble with this. And, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King explained that the most segregated hour in America is, is Sunday morning at, at, you know, 10 o'clock. Like, just the idea that um, you people go here, you people go there, and, and we're all supposed to be worshiping the same God. And uh, the tensions and the historical differences, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Um, so for me personally, I'm grateful that my background, I actually grew up uh, in a church that was, I grew up in a church that was predominantly white and yet, um, had people of color and had people of different backgrounds and different, you know, uh, ethnicities. Um, I, I now serve in a church, uh, that is extremely diverse. And yet what's interesting is that my experience in how I grew up and how that looked and how we worshiped is extremely similar, even in this context. And what's amazing about that is the connection, what what makes it so that worshiping in that context is very similar to worshiping in this context, even though uh, there's differences in terms of diversity and ethnicity, is that we're all linked by the worship of Almighty God. Now, there's plenty of, plenty of you know, examples of folks who um, have, have had bad experiences in the church, right? Or have felt left out. Uh, or, or even examples of of churches themselves, individual churches, uh, having not conflict, but differences of perspective or even goals. Billy Graham used to do these crusades, and he would call on all the local pastors in the community he was going to, to come together to make it happen. And you would see at the crusade, every single church leader, didn't matter the color, didn't matter the rate, like everybody came together and God moved powerfully and mightily and did incredible work. But Billy always struggled with the fact that after he left, it seemed like that unity and connection went away. And one of the things that was kind of happening there was that you would have a uh, one perspective or one group would have the perspective that it's only the gospel. That's what we need to focus on. Whereas another group, predominantly people of color, would say, yes, it's the gospel, but it also has to have a social impact and make a difference. And they would be invited to to content or to events about the gospel. But when they would then invite people to events for social outreach and an impact, uh, they it wasn't reciprocated. And so, and that still happens a little bit today. And those are things that we kind of have to wrestle with and think through. Why is it that one group focuses just on what they claim to be the gospel while another group kind of says, well, the gospel is more than just this. And so you have argument and, and mm. difference of, of opinion on what is the gospel? Are you preaching a different gospel? And, and mm. it really comes down to the question of uh, scope versus content, 
right? The content of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what is its scope? What does that apply to? Um, and so, yeah, that's what you see in, a lot in the church today is differences of even how these things can be applied. Uh, one church or one leader may focus solely on evangelism, while another is focusing on the continuation beyond that in discipleship, leading towards sanctification and the impact on a community. Well, and and you mentioned a, a very critical piece at the end in terms of discipleship and how does that play on with with the church. Um, I, what are what would be maybe one way you would encourage um, any organization or your your personal um, organization right now, your church, to to carry on what 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 you mentioned about Billy? You know, in terms of hey. After the crusade, after it's all been done, we, we want to see this continuation of unity within the, the different communities right. of, of different churches. How would you encourage any, any church leader to continue to do that? What would be one practical way to, to do that? Right. I think that practically, we have to be committed to community. And so when you want to see reconciliation take place, it's not just a commitment to your community and your individual church. It's a commitment to the community at large. Mm-hmm. So we want to, a lot of times in Christianese, we say we want to reach the community. But what that really means is to effectively evangelize, effectively share the gospel so that people's lives are transformed forever by the power of what Christ did on our behalf. But it has to continue into every aspect of the life of community. So that looks like feeding the hungry sheltering the homeless. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, uh, providing care for those in need because that's the scope of the gospel. That's the continuation of sanctification, letting the kingdom of God be advanced in a community. I think the key, and again, I, I Dr. Tony Evans talks a lot about this and I reference him a lot. He has an incredible book, Oneness Embraced. Uh, and obviously there's a ton of different books out of mm-hmm. there, but for the sake of today's episode, uh, there, there's one that I encourage people to check out because it it reorients our perspective to a kingdom mindset. So here's what I mean. If we want to see churches united, if we want to see the church in general continuing to actually see and bring about reconciliation, then we have to have a kingdom mindset, a kingdom first mentality. The idea of bringing glory to God, the idea of his desires and his will being our first priority. And what that looks like is not, hey, whose side are you on? You know, like, hey, are you uh, politically or socially or uh, relationally or financially? Whose side are you on? God doesn't come to take sides. Uh, Joshua uh, tells us when, when, when he stands before the, the, the Lord, he didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Mm. It's a kingdom mindset. It's something greater than just uh, systems. You know, we absolutely have to have systems. We, we uh, here at Calvary, you know, we uh, support and actually uh, it meets in our building a 501c3 organization called Good Hope. We feed hundreds of families every single week, every week. Uh, people in need, we, we want to, we, we have Good Hope prisons and Good Hope foods and, you know, all these different aspects. And why do we do that even though we're a church? Why do we, why do we support that? Why do we allow that organization to meet in our building? Um, and actually some of its leadership is actually on our staff. Why do we do that? Because we recognize that the gospel goes so much greater, goes further. It applies to everything. And if we have a kingdom mindset, then there's a commitment to actually making a difference in the community. And so we want to bring reconciliation. If you want to see it between churches, uh, well, then those churches have to have a kingdom mindset aimed and oriented at the community based on the gospel, recognizing that it's the gospel being applied, applying the gospel every day. I, I want to come back to your personal story. I, this is yeah. I do podcasts to find out more about friends. Um, you know, you had mentioned growing up in a church that was mostly white. Um, I went to Valley Forge. Um, it was more diverse than the town that I grew up in, but obviously it wow. was more white. Um, and you know, you you mentioned that that the church you serve at now is fairly diverse, and I I guess. I'd like to kind of know from a Christian perspective, um, as someone that's lived in these spaces, what's been the positive for you and what's been really difficult kind of finding your way? Because it seems like there's a conversation that if I'm in a space and I'm a minority, like 
I don't feel like I can be who God created me to be. Um, but then there's also like a shared understanding, like you offer a lot of hope, but I also want to kind of hear, you know, what's that experience been like for you? And I think you just bring from what you're sharing a unique perspective to that question. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, God led my family into that community in terms of the church. And I actually was saved in a church of God church. Um, and then we started attending uh, an Assemblies of God church, which was the one I grew up in. I was seven years old, started going there. I did Royal Rangers and, uh, and, and all the, you know, all the different uh, Assemblies of God kind of oriented things. And actually Valley Forge is an Assemblies of God uh, Bible college. And so um, my senior pastor growing up went to Valley Forge. And so that influenced me a lot because he took us to breakaways. He took us to those spaces to kind of be exposed to it. And in each of those instances, it was God's leading. So I think it's incredibly important for us to recognize that you need to go where God calls you. You know, I was, I didn't necessarily gravitate towards a church or school based on its racial makeup or diversity, even though being black is a huge part of who I am. You know, somebody's like, oh, well, you you know, no, I'm black, man. I'm, I'm all in. Uh, can't hide it, wouldn't try to. But uh, being in those contexts that were predominantly white, um, I'm grateful that I didn't have a ton of experiences that made me feel like I couldn't be who I was. Now, part of that is personality. Uh, I tend to be outgoing. Uh, I'm a leader and I'm confident in who God made me to be. And that stems from my incredible mother who raised me, led me to the Lord, and uh, reminded me daily that no circumstance, no situation, nothing could ever stop God from accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish in my life. And I think that more people need that type of confidence. And it's, it's not personal in the sense of it's just my personality, but rather it's a confidence that's born from recognizing that God made me on purpose. And so understanding that kind of helped me a lot. I mean, were there situations and circumstances where you deal with things that you look back on? You say, I think I might've been treated a little differently or, or that doesn't seem to be how everybody else uh, gets treated. Gratefully, I didn't have that experience in my church. Growing up, uh, my, I, I did not experience that at all in church, uh, which is a blessing. Um, we were we were treated with respect, honor, and care, just like every person who walked through the doors. And at Valley Forge, I'm grateful that my professors and my uh, uh, leaders, I didn't experience that amongst them either. There was a lot of love. There was a lot of respect. I even had some uh, professors and, and leaders who, uh, who were people of color and, and poured into my life. But as you live in any context, you do experience uh, from people around you. So maybe not from the top down from a leadership perspective, but from a uh, you know, relational perspective around, there was a lot of different uh, things that you deal with. And for me, one of the things I dealt with was ignorance. And not ignorance in terms of bias or racism, but, but ignorance in terms of actual ignorance. You know, Peter, you mentioned you come from a town that wasn't very diverse. A lot of students hadn't really spent time with somebody of another race or color uh, until they got to Valley Forge, you know, or until they, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't know what that was like. And their perspective was shaped by television, media portrayals, or uh, just an idea from their political perspective of what it, what it meant to interact with someone. And um, I'm grateful that in my interactions, a lot of ignorance is able to be overcome with personal connection and information. So, you know, have I been called names that are inappropriate by someone in anger? Uh, sure, sure. Did that ha- that's happened in a bunch of contexts. Have I been uh, pulled over? Have I been uh, stopped uh, because of the color of my skin as opposed to uh, a, a valid reason uh, in terms of an infraction or breaking the law? Sure, those things have happened in my life, but I'm grateful that they haven't stopped me and that God has allowed for me to to inform and uh, be a difference even in circumstances, situations like that. So uh, at Valley Forge, you know, there are people who are, who are ignorant. I think that that's true of anywhere, but I had an incredible experience at, at the University of Valley Forge and wouldn't trade it for the world. And God used it in my life in an incredibly powerful, powerful way as well. And so um, I think that you deal with people just like you deal with people. 
And uh, there are people from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different experiences. But for me, uh, the ability to focus on purpose and to focus on who God made me to be has been has made a lot of difference. Yeah, and and mentioning you know your your experience at, at college and now with your current role as a as a pastor, yeah. um, what how has that nurtured um, or allowed conversations on this on this topic to kind of just take place? And you know how has have you seen that played out in terms of is is it is it welcome? Meaning. Can people ask these these questions because of your perspective and also your upbringing, and or is it something that kind of like just doesn't get talked about? Well, again, I'm grateful for uh, our church. You know, our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Tim Schmidt, who actually also graduated from Valley Forge many many years ago. Go Patriots! Um, but his, Here we are. Right, go Patriots! Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he, you know, he grew up in uh, Virginia. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s. And actually, he was a youth pastor in the 60s and 70s. And, and um, you know, what's interesting about him was that he was raised by his dad, who was also a preacher, um, to love and care for everyone, even as the gospel calls you to. And so he was in a context that was extremely racially charged, living out a biblical model of love, care, and respect. And that impacted and shaped him. And so as a senior pastor, he's He's been doing an incredible job. So he 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 hires our our pastoral staff uh, is extremely diverse. You know whether that be uh, people of color, whether that be uh, uh, women, as well as people from all different backgrounds. And so we're extremely diverse in our leadership, which allows us to then minister to an extremely diverse community. Mm-hmm. I think that's a part of that. And we have those conversations. And listen, guys, conversations have consequences. Conversations absolutely have consequences. Since speaking more about this in the last in the last year mm. uh, we've had people leave the church you know and these are people who love Jesus but some of the conversations and what that has led to have led people to feel uncomfortable or to not want to continue talking about it more people have left based on I don't think we need to talk about that mm. than necessarily I don't agree and so continuing the conversation is a priority because the gospel speaks to the context of our community. And so uh, his leadership, our, our senior pastor's leadership has been incredible in that um, he's leading. We want to be leading the conversation about reconciliation. We want to be leading the conversation about what it means to be uh, united through the power of the gospel and through the power of Christ and seeing that which was wrong made right, seeing that which uh, uh, has been torn be, be sewn back together and reconnected. Um, that I reconnected is a really good image when we think about reconciliation. So we've had, it's from the leadership, it's from that mm-hmm. direction. And that's a part of our, our mission statement and who we are reaching, right? We want to reach, but we also uh, first and foremost recognize God. And therefore uh, we're raising up leaders and ministers of the gospel in order to, to, to go forth and empower and see reconciliation happen. So, Brigham, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little nerdy on you. Um, we'll do a little okay. mi- mild history lesson of the Assemblies of God because yes. I think this helps answer some of the questions, and it just kind of informs our perspective. So, um, the history of the Assemblies of God: there was a, a movement of God in Azusa Street. There was a man, um, a black man by the name of um, uh, Seymour William Seymour, William Seymour. and he was taught under Charles Parham about everything, but William Seymour was actually placed outside the classroom because he was black. And uh, we're going to tell y'all Google this, but Charles (laughs) Parham shows up to Azusa with William Seymour. And really it doesn't take much Dr. DiGiacomo. I hope you're listening. Um, doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to see that the Assemblies of God had its roots with Charles Parham. You and I went to college, we won't tell how many years ago, but- Many, many years ago. Many, but the thing that I appreciated was Dr. Giacomo said, this is part of our history. Like, mm-hmm. was very just, you know, yes, the Assemblies of God has taken steps, but there was a split. The Church of God in Christ went one way. I think I'm getting right. that right. And then the Assemblies of God went another way. 
Tell us what it's been like to know that history. You've remained in the assemblies because I think that helps us answer this question. Why does reconciliation matter to Christianity? Yes. Um, well, I think that's fantastic because that is a part of our history and it's something that we shouldn't gloss over or ignore. You know, Charles Parham, uh, for as much as he loved God, struggled with racism. Mm. And when he put William Seymour outside the door, he said, you couldn't come in the classroom. What's interesting is that William was so hungry for the presence of God, and he was so hungry to learn uh, that he was willing to sit outside in order to learn and therefore go and operate in the purposes and plans of God for his life, which is a common experience in a, a lot of our racial history as a nation. You know, people were denied opportunities based on the color of their skin, but they were so hungry and so ardently pursuing uh, freedom pursuing uh, knowledge, pursuing uh, that which they knew to be right, so that they could then not just further the aims or goals of their own specific people group, but ultimately change the world. Mm. And when William Seymour went to Azusa Street, what's interesting about that is there were, uh, there were black preachers, there were women, and there were, there were white preachers all coming together in leadership to this incredible movement. And all of them acknowledged what they had been through racially and all those types of things. And, and you want to talk about drama. Not only does the, the Church of God in Christ split off at one point, but when the Assemblies of God actual forms in Hot Springs, Arkansas, there are no black people there. Mm. Even though it sprung out of what was taking place uh, in Southern California in a movement that was incredibly diverse. The Holy Spirit fell on everyone. It didn't matter what color, it didn't matter what gender, it didn't matter what background. God was an equal opportunity. If you seek me, you will be found by me. And yet our movement took from that and went down to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and it was only white people who kind of formed what is now known as the Assemblies of God. And what's interesting about that, a heart, a incredible passion for missions um, is what you know, birth that out. Now, why am I still connected to the Assemblies of God? You know, I got saved and then I grew up in an AG church. But what what I think is the reason that I'm still a part of this movement is, is there's a few reasons. But one is that even in acknowledging the history, we acknowledge what God desired to accomplish, even through broken people. And this is crucial to reconciliation because we have to remember people don't have to be perfect in order to be, be reconciled. And we kind of talked about this at the outset. Can there be conflict? Can there still be differences and still have reconciliation? Well, there has to be because the, the only place that there's no conflict is when there's perfection and none of us are perfect. Mm. And so even as we acknowledge the imperfections in our history and our past, so long as we don't try to wash over them or ignore them, so long as we acknowledge, look how God used people struggling with racism. Look how God used people struggling with these issues as well to ultimately send the gospel around the world so that now, this is what's powerful, the Assemblies of God worldwide is majority non-white. The Assemblies of God worldwide is majority non-white. Even though it was started in that those kind of roots, now more people who are a part of this movement are people of color than, than are of white. Because God can do anything through anyone to accomplish his purposes. And so I caught on because I've got a heart for that mission, for reaching the lost, for, for sending missionaries around the world. You know, our church supports over 600 missionaries and missions organizations uh, on a monthly basis. And the reason we do it is because it's, it's foundational to who, we, to who we are as a movement. Even recognizing that our racial history hasn't been great. Thankfully, our leadership over the, the, the last uh, few decades has done an incredible job. There's actually a, a, a reconciliation with the Church of God in Christ, Peter, as you mentioned, with Dr. George Wood, our previous superintendent, um, actually meeting with and reconnecting uh, our movements uh, on a level of, of reconciliation in terms of relationship with the Church of God in Christ and the Assemblies of God. And it's amazing to see how wrongs are being righted, how God is still in the business of reconciliation even today. You know, something else just to point out, and the reason I, I want to spend time talking about the Assemblies of God is yeah. we hear about other denominations and we hear about other churches not getting this right. Um, I'm going to geek out. The first um, African-American that became licensed or ordained 
Um, I believe it was in 1953. Um, okay. So, so, and like, I just kind of see that. And, you know, I think what we're dealing with as a society and a, as a country, and even why we're asking this about Christianity is there's a tendency to look at every place that we got wrong, but there's a, there's an even more important, how can I hold intention the truth of we got this wrong? Um, and I talk about we as a someone's got, it's like a family to me, but, um, but also where did Christianity get this right? Cause I, I think that's the tension that we're holding, which is Christianity is the same. Um, it's the same movement that slave owners use the Bible to say slaves were, yeah. uh, there, but it's also the same movement that William Wilberforce came out of, who is integral in changing England. And and I think that something unique, and I'd be curious what both of you, Ramon and Brigham, after the what's unique about Christianity is at the heart of the gospel, like even what you've been pointing out, we don't have to be afraid of talking about the sins of the past. Right. With right. also having a vision for the future, because as I think about reconciliation, not just racial, financial and poverty, when I think about forgiveness, one to one, like there's a lot like that's what's unique about Christianity. It's not dismiss or judgment. It's right. I can hold intention, the truth of the past and realize that it hurts and it's painful, but I can still have hope for the future. I don't know. What do you both? I mean, is that I don't yeah. know. I just be curious your thoughts. Well, I definitely think that you're right there. Um, I think that that is absolutely the step that we have to take logically in our minds as we think about how we move forward. But there's another element of that, Peter, that is crucially important as well, which is the idea and acknowledgement that reconciliation is directly connected to justice. Reconciliation mm. is directly connected to restitution. Reconciliation starts with repentance. I mean, when it comes to the gospel, it starts with our ability to recognize, or rather, uh, God God revealing, I think that's the R word, not just recognition, but God actually revealing our sin so that we want to turn away from it, so that we want to repent, which means to acknowledge it and then turn away from it and, and go in the opposite direction. And so there's an aspect of reconciliation that's connected, founded in repentance, the idea of we did wrong, acknowledging it, then not doing that action anymore. Mm. But the other element of it is is justice. And biblically, justice looks a lot. There, there's justice requires restitution. It requires reconciliation and repentance. Right, all those things go into it. And God is just, and so we have to think about how God's justice was satisfied in Christ's sacrifice, and therefore we're reconciled to Him. Well, how do how does that play out? What is the scope of that gospel? in our history or in our world. And what's interesting too is that, you know, the first century they were dealing with this. In Acts, uh, the Greek widows were being uh, discriminated against uh, as opposed to the, the Jewish ones and so, or uh, the, the uh, Israeli ones. And so it's, it's, it's something we've been dealing with this whole time. Mm-hmm. I, I would echo the same thing. Any, anytime we're dealing with um, topics of justice and reconciliation being one of them, um, we we have to be willing to just have the hard conversations. And yeah. having those hard conversations is probably one of the toughest things that probably keeps us from having <laughs> having more conversations, you know? Um, and, and it reminded me of something that you mentioned in terms of, you know, when you guys started really pressing in even more um, this last past year, you, you noticed that there was a, a shift in terms of maybe some people leaving or some people having a hard time having these hard conversations. What, what would, you know, what were maybe one po- one practical um, steps or uh, approach that you guys took as you guys were noticing this happening? Was it something that you guys kept moving forward with in terms of like, Hey, let's, keep going hard or that you guys evaluated and, and, and just refocus on like, all right, this is how, how much we're going to be doing it. And then um, this is going to help us also make sure that we're, we still have the hard conversations, but not have it to a point where we're really not helping, helping in the process. Yeah. I think that our commitment is to leading the conversation. And so uh, a lot of people, when it's out of the news cycle, 
they forget about it or they want to move on from it. Mm -hmm. But the issue still remains. And even as we think about the idea of repentance and restitution and Mm -hmm. the idea of making changes that actually make a difference, we have to be led by the Holy Spirit in continuing that conversation. And so for us, our senior, uh, our senior pastor, myself, so I'm a campus pastor here in one of our communities. And so I, I was at some of those Black Lives Matter rallies. And our senior pastor went to one as well. And man, when I tell you, whew, there was some drama, okay? Uh, there was some drama uh, because we don't support the Black Lives Matter organization. Uh, their platform is one that, that has some things that are, are not for God, that are not for the, his word and what it says. But on the other, other hand, we support the statement wholeheartedly because Black Lives Matter to God. Somebody says, well, all lives matter. Absolutely. Uh, but that means that Black Lives Matter, and we're recognizing in our society all these issues and things that need to be addressed. And so we're committed to continuing the conversation. We're committed to leading the conversation. That looked like our senior pastor preaching on it. Um, that looked like uh, he and I teaching um, a 13-week course online and in person, even in the midst of COVID, in order to have conversations weekly, hearing testimonies. That looked like a church-wide Zoom call, a church-wide. I mean, it was massive. It was really hard to kind of you know, facilitate it all, but um, letting people have a voice. And then most recently, we had the uh, president of the National Black Fellowship of the Assemblies of God, uh, uh, Bishop Walter Harvey, come and lead a seminar, uh, which was both online and in person as well. And just events, uh, uh, things, opportunities for people to hear more and engage. That doesn't mean that all we're preaching on is that, but we are applying the gospel directly to the conversation and directly to our community as they engage with uh, this idea and, and what does it mean? And we're, we're leading that. And we believe that as a church, we have to take the lead. You know, the apostles, even that issue I mentioned in the book of Acts, the, the, when, when some were being discriminated against, mm-hmm. what did they do? They, they went out and they found uh, uh, seven young men from the people group of those who were being aggrieved. And they put them in leadership over the entire process mm-hmm. so that everyone was then served. You know, they, they didn't ignore it. They didn't say, oh, well, they, you know, they're like, well, we're ju- we just need to commit ourselves to prayer. Uh, they did. They were the apostles. But what they did first was they put people in place, giving leadership in order that the gospel might impact and affect that circumstance and situation and continue to move forward. Now, our history as a church, Big C, come on, man, there's, there's a ton of stuff that that's not right. That's not good. That happened. And we can't shirk that, that people uh, misused the word of God, misused the name of God for evil. Um, but thankfully, our God is a God who, as shown in, in Genesis, uh, can take that which was meant for evil, that which was meant for harm and use it for good. Joseph, uh, you know, um, he was a slave, right? He was a slave. He was a prisoner. Ultimately, God made him a uh, leader of one of the greatest nations in the world at that time in Egypt. And ultimately, God used those circumstances to bring about his purposes. And that's not to say that we should just let things happen. No, we should be the voice. We should be the difference. We should lead the conversation and take action. Uh, but practical steps, uh, Ramon, you, you mentioned one of some practical steps. I think it's important for us to be a part of it. I think it's important for us to be at the town hall meetings and to meet with our leaders and to uh, make sure that we're educating people in the church about what it means to apply the gospel. And remember, it's kingdom first. Mm-hmm. It's not just, hey, we're going to talk about race. It's going to, it's, hey, let's talk about what God desires mm-hmm. in terms of oneness, in terms of unity, in terms of connection. And that comes through the person and power of Jesus Christ. Well, We've hit some controversial topics. This might be a little bit off, but, um, you know, what does the Christian teaching on reconciliation say about cancel culture today? What are your thoughts on that? Wow. Wow. I think that that's a really great question, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, I think it's tough because you've got people who are now going back and pulling Twitter posts or, pulling uh, Facebook posts or things on social media and using that to shame and cancel, if you will, um, public figures and personalities. And I think that as Christians, 
we believe in accountability, but we also believe in forgiveness. Now, a lot of that is on a personal level, which is interesting, right? The, the execution of, of, of justice, the execution of accountability, right? Calling people to account for actions have consequences, as mm-hmm. my senior pastor likes to say, right? Words have meanings, actions have consequences. That's absolutely true. And some of what people have said in the past may actually reflect on how they feel today. Uh, we need to look at actions and those sorts of things. But what we're really talking about is who is the source of that accountability? You know, who who should be the one saying you no longer need to be in that position? Or or is like how does that work? Is is it the church's place? Is it uh social media's place? Is it uh, you know, this group think and just this big horde of people online saying we you should be out of a job? And you know, so companies and businesses and organizations are kind of heeding that specifically because their priority and their purpose is making money. And so if the people who are the source of that money are going to, you know, step away from, uh, so there's kind of this, this culture that we're engaging with. How does the church engage cancel culture? I think that the church needs to continue to apply the gospel to the scope of that. And so what that might look like is, um, is drawing people to where people are now, you know, it, and this is this is thin ice, Peter. So thanks, but uh, <laughs> the reality is is drawing people to where they are now. You know, uh, we looked at our history as the Assemblies of God, and Charles Parham and his teachings influenced and helped and benefited William Seymour, who God used to bring revival across the nation and around the world. Um, but we don't get to ignore that Charles Parham struggled racism. And and here's the interesting thing too. You can take a bunch of different movements, right? John mm. Wesley, uh, uh, he you know struggled with racism. I, I live in a in a culture where his influence is heavy, and uh, even in some of my my post bachelor degrees and things like that, he you know heavily influenced in some of the schools that I went to. And the reality is that uh, you know struggle with racism had the implementation of policies and practices that were discriminatory. And it's like, well, wait a minute, should we throw away? all of those sermons and all of those teaching because, because he did, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that we have to be uh, mature enough and nuanced enough to be able to uh, engage every circumstance and situation for what it is and think through it and process it. And in order to have a process to do that, I think we need, we need the, the perspective and the view uh, of the gospel. I think that we have to have our gospel goggles on as we review case by case, as we review situation by situation, as we engage circumstance by circumstance, and that there's no blanket answer across across the land. So cancel culture tends to want to just, you know, wipe everything away. But I think we need to be more nuanced than that. I think we need to be more intentional than that. Well, and I, I love what you said. Um, uh, this hopefully isn't too controversial. There's canceling in the Bible, but based on what you said, there's canceling because people decided not to change. You know, yeah. so you know, for all of you, we're we're just having fun. This this is what it was kind of like for us to be at Valley Forge. So y'all are yeah. These are some of the cafeteria conversations we had. Right, so, right. Those are huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a story in First Corinthians where. There's a stepson sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul says, the writer of that, he says, you need to excommunicate. You need to cancel them. Um, yep. Now, again, without going too intricate, when you go to 2 Corinthians, which probably is actually the fourth book of Corinthians, there's two letters we don't have, You know, there's this whole thing on reconciliation because right. it seems that from reading the text, that that stepson um, and stepmother must have pursued some type of reconciliation. So I I think, you know, I was recently having a conversation with someone who I love with cancel culture. Cancel culture has the consequences right. They have the, well, what, I should rephrase that. Cancel culture has the accountability and sin right. The problem is, is at what level, like what you were saying, is there forgiveness restitution. And I think that that's kind of what we're struggling with. And even for you to say that case by case, 
we have to frame it in such a way. I mean, that's what makes it difficult to talk about. So right. I'm even throwing right. myself on thin ice there. I don't know, Ramon, what yeah, thoughts no, you, you are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to speak on, on from the pastoral perspective. How do we deal with the fact that if if we have, let's say, the the group of body, group of people speaking to us and, and saying, hey, why aren't you talking about X, you know, whatever topic that may be, we fill in the blank. Would it be, you know, because that that in one way for many individuals, it could be taking it from that perspective saying, well, we're done with this leadership or we're done with this church because they did not take lead on a particular topic. How do we help individuals or how do we help people um, navigate right. those with the leadership so that we can together move forward? Right. Well, I, that's 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 the question, right? Mm. I mean, the reality is we're not looking for solutions for our community and our churches that are the subject of the whims of man's ideas. Mm. That's what cancel culture is, right? Mm. It's the whims of man's ideas. We're looking for solutions for our community and for our churches that are based on the mandate of God's word. Mm -hmm. So in terms of you're looking, we're looking for processes. How do we, okay, this church isn't talking about this at all. They're ignoring it. You know, how do we do that? I think it's important to have conversations with leadership. You know, I think it's incredibly important for people to get get a time on the schedule to meet with that pastor and say, Pastor, I think we need to talk about this and challenge. You know, I think that our, our leaders, I think that there's some folks who feel unqualified. Take the white senior pastor in a community struggling and dealing with not only the cancel culture, but racial tension, mm -hmm. political, and we haven't even engaged how the politics play into all of this, mm -hmm. how people have kind of melded the two two things there into a full cake of just destruction. But uh, we're, we're, we've, we've, got to, we've got to encourage people to be willing to have more conversations. And listen, if you feel unqualified, you know, the, the, the white senior pastor who feels unqualified to necessarily speak to it, and therefore they're shying away from speaking about it, well, let's find means and methods wherewith you can learn wherewith you can give voice to those issues, maybe even in your own church. Even if a church is predominantly white, uh, it still matters for us to be training and teaching people what God has to say about a circumstance and a situation. So we've got to look to God's word. And that doesn't mean every sermon needs to be about this. Guys, the, the Bible's big. It really is. But I think that as we hold the Bible in one hand and these, these the newspaper in the other, as my old uh, 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 college professors used to say, right? You hold the Bible in one hand. They don't make newspapers anymore, right? But uh, but but your just phone, having both in, in mind, your having your phone in your hand. Ultimately, we need to apply one to the other. We need to apply God's word to the other. We need to speak to it, and so it may look like uh, being intentional to have moments. You know, where you have the seminar, you have uh, the conversation, or you bring someone in and you you want to educate, not based on, hey, what does it mean to be white or black, but rather, what does it mean to be the people of God mm -hmm. together? And how do we address these things and bring confidence and information? Again, it's not on the whims. The solutions can't come from man's ideas. It's got to mm -hmm. come from the mandate of God's word. And so, Ramon, really to what you're speaking to, I think it's important for people to be willing to schedule that coffee or, or that counseling appointment with their pastor to say, hey, I feel like we should be talking about this more. And then be willing when their pastor says, are you willing to help? Because mm -hmm. a lot of times we want to throw the problem on the mm -hmm. pastor and walk away. Yep. Uh, but of course, practically speaking, you need to be a part of the solution. So don't go to the pastor without the willingness and the preparedness to be a part of the solution to be a part of that conversation and a part of helping that to make that happen. Man, just like um, a Valley Forge cafeteria, it's almost like time for clat, like time really went uh, by fast. Uh, and, you does. know, the one thing, you know, we just recorded an episode with Daniel M. You know, he shared a little bit about this topic, but this is the reason why we have this podcast. We, we want to bring individuals like Brigham, like Daniel, we brought Barbara Thomas, like, so that you can learn and kind of have a different perspective. Um, we always close with this question. All three of us answer okay. it. It's what does Jesus have to do with this topic? So it's not that difficult today. <laughs> um, so, so bring him the way it works is 
Uh, Ramon and I answer, and then you clean up any heresy that's left. So does that? All right, let's go. Um, I made Ramon go first last time, so I should probably go first this time, right? That's fine. I had a one-word answer. I was gonna say everything, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> go no, ahead. I want to cheat. I want to cheat. No, but um, really, everything. I mean, I I am, you know, just thinking about the gospel. Just thinking of what was shared this, um, in this podcast, and and thinking, man, if it wasn't for what has been done, um, on the cross, then, you know, I we we wouldn't have this connection. We wouldn't have this access to um to Jesus and and be able to be reconciled um and be forgiven for everything that that we've done. So I mean that's why the first thing that came to mind was man everything. Like without it we're nothing. Uh I I say this I, I say this more. I uh I try to read every night to my three year old daughter from the Jesus storybook Bible. And um I don't care if you have kids or don't have kids, you should buy a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And one of my favorite stories to read to her is the story of Zacchaeus. And they put Zacchaeus on a stool next to Jesus, and they talk about him being short. But the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is this tax collector. It's in Luke 18, I believe. And he has basically defrauded his own people and he meets Jesus. And at the end of meeting Jesus, he makes a statement. I'm going to pay the people that I hurt back four times what they deserve. Now the cynical side of me says that man's got a lot of money, but the, the question that we're dealing with here today why does Christianity matter to reconciliation? I just see it encapsulated in that story where Zacchaeus has a past that he's obviously sinned, he's obviously done wrong, but then out of the whim of the gospel, doesn't just say, I'm here to follow Jesus, but actually turns in a way and says, I'm gonna repay back four times what I owe. And I think it goes back to what Brigham's been talking about. That is the power of reconciliation to not only have a 180 um, in belief, but a 180 in practice. That's good. No, that's really good. I mean, I, I think when we think about this question of, you know, what does Jesus have to do with this topic? What we're really talking about is the church. I mean, the role of the church. Um, how does Jesus? Uh, enact or move or change or work in the world today. Mm. And I think he does that through the church. And the church's role is to execute uh, divine justice, is to execute uh, restitution, is to execute um, reconciliation on behalf of the defenseless, the poor, the oppressed. It's, it's this idea of we are the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what does Jesus have to do with this? Well, he has to address this issue directly through us. Mm. And a lot of people don't like it when I say this, but the reality is that when we say, God, what do you want to do? God's looking right back and saying, and saying, I want to use you. Mm. And this idea of us being the hands and feet of Jesus, this idea of us being the face of Jesus uh, in, in showing his love and showing his uh, mercy and showing his grace um, and actually enacting that in our world and in our communities and being committed to it. Um, I love that connection there, uh, Peter, with, with Zacchaeus and that idea that when you encounter Jesus, it doesn't just make you say, okay, I'm sorry. It makes you say, okay, I'm sorry. Let me fix it. Let me, uh, let me by, by what he's done in my life, by what he's done for me, Remember, Jesus said salvation has come to this home. When he talked about it, he said, all right, let me, let me act. There's action. And uh, I think that through the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, what does Jesus have to do with reconciliation? He wants us to be people who make it happen, who see it come to fruition uh, in our communities and around the world. Bring him. Uh, this is a joy uh, to have you on. Uh, we're going to be tagging him in social media, so you're going to see him if you want to connect with him there. 
Uh, the, be- the best way for you to catch up with this podcast is go to whygotawhypodcast.com. Uh, subscribe to our email. That way you can't miss it. Um, I'd really encourage those of you, just all of you to share this episode. I think it's really important. This is a conversation that we're all wrestling with. And uh, podcasts have a great way of just starting good conversations and bring them a good person to start them with. So we all, uh, we hope that you have a great day. Thank you for joining us. Bring them. Thanks for uh, coming all the way from Boston through uh, Riverside.fm. Appreciate it, bud. All right. Have a great day.